You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. The stories of those who exited prostitution tend to be wildly different than those still working in the industry and identifying as sex workers. And what men tend to believe about those working in prostitution tends to align with that sex worker narrative as well. That some women just really enjoy prostitution, that it's simply a job like any other, that these women are making such good money that it's a fair trade. But when you speak to women freed from the trade, able to look back at their experiences clearly and honestly, you will hear a different truth. Andrea Hines is a Canadian feminist who, at the age of 22 and with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, entered the licensed commercial sex trade in Edmonton, Alberta. Andrea stayed in the industry for seven years, working as an escort, a dominatrix, and eventually a brothel owner. She left the industry in 2013 and is now a writer, speaker, and filmmaker working to raise awareness about commercial sexual exploitation. I spoke with her recently about her experiences and what she views as the harms of so-called sex work ideology. So, I mean, I wonder... First of all, if you can tell me a bit about yourself, Um, you know, what was your childhood like? How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a pretty loaded question. Um, So my childhood, I want to say is pretty, it, it was pretty normal for the most part. Um, I grew up in Fort McMurray, Alberta, which is the oil patch, uh, five hours north of Edmonton, Alberta, where I reside now. And it's really a town that is characterized by a lot of uh, boom-bust type cycle and a lot of drug culture. And so growing up there, it was really kind of in your face, um, a lot of social challenges and things that people were dealing with. But it was also at the same time this little kind of family community, or at least tried to be. So it was sort of this mixture of the good and the bad. And um, yeah, it's nothing really honestly jumps out as too, too wild. Um, But there was just a lot of um, drugs. Like I said, that was really a big thing and a lot of big money. So a lot of kids I knew were you know, latchkey kids, their parents were working at plant sites, you know, they were essentially raising themselves. And uh, I was no different. My mom and dad were both plant site workers. And I just spent a lot of time in daycares as a kid and um, at home with my sister alone waiting for mom and dad to get home from work. And so um, it just, you know, a lot of those kids, I guess, spent a lot of time watching TV, which I also did. And I think early on, things just started to change when I started to become aware of hypersexualization and pop culture and media and that influence. And um, so a lot of, you know, Madonna, 
Tiffany, <laughs> a lot of those kind of like late 80s, early 90s acts that were really kind of pushing the envelope on women's sexuality. And it just, um, I don't know, it just changed something in me. It was kind of like, that's, that's what womanhood is, is this sexualized depiction of us. And that kind of started everything, I think, really. And then pairing that with one of my earliest experiences in life of uh, having a boy at a daycare I attended, exposing his penis to me regularly and at a couple times asking me to touch it. Um, you know, me being a three-year-old child, not understanding what was happening. You kind of put everything together and it's sort of like, oh, this is, again, what womanhood is and, or what being female is, is this sexual undertone to absolutely everything about your existence and so that kind of just kept me spiraling I guess and by age nine or ten I'm dressing in the mid you know uh, or the what do they call them crop top kind of shirts and mm -hmm. uh, the low pants and everything or skin tight pants and then by 13 um, you know I'm dating boys by 14 I lost my virginity to an older guy by 14 that same time I'm dabbling into drug culture um, and it just sort of kept going from there so teenage years were pretty typical you know lots of bush parties and um, you know house parties things like that but um, yeah it just drew all the wrong people into my life in a lot of ways so a lot of young guys who were trying to, you know, have the money, have the fast cars, have all the, the girls. And so for them, that was drug culture. And so again, it was this like, just weaving of all these things together and um, kind of a perfect storm to create a young woman who sees the sex trade as liberating. And I think that was a big thing too, was just the ignorance of that and not really knowing anything, not having exposure to any kind of socialist or radical feminist ideology. And so after a slew of really bad relationships, um, pairing with financial illiteracy and, um, you know, just female poverty, it really didn't take much then for me at 22 with my $60,000 of debt to fall privy to thinking that the sex trade was going to be what fixed my predicaments in my situation. So I, I often tell people my story really isn't that unique when you look at it. It's a story that I've personally heard hundreds of times, I want to say, of just that cycle of poverty and the deadbeat boyfriends leeching off you and the low self-esteem and then sex work ideology. And it, it just creates that perfect storm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so unfortunate because it really is such a common story and it's so easy for these kinds of things to happen to girls and you know as you say it it teaches girls that they exist for sex you know to be looked at you know that this is their value that you know boys should want them that they should be trying to attract boys but also that you know it's it's normal for boys or men to, you know, push past 
your boundaries um, sexually, um, you know, through sexual harassment, things like molestation and, and sexual abuse and groping and all these other things that are all too common experiences for girls and women. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I wonder how you think, you know, why is it that some girls and women do end up in prostitution and others don't? I know that's not a simple question and there's no simple answer to that, but it is, you know, I, I think that there might be some common patterns or trends wherein it's some, some, some women end up in that, that path and, and others don't. What do you think's happening there? Yeah, I think it's what you said. It's, there's some common undertones, but I think honestly, at the very end of the day, it all typically for the most part comes down to just luck mm. and circumstances and opportunities that exist for women, doors that have been opened or closed for them. And I, I say that because I've met women really of all types in the sex trade and people want to paint this picture that women who sell sex are these hedonistic, free, free love, you know, mm-hmm. happy, uh, go lucky kind of I'm doing my thing. I'm vibing and all that, but it's, and maybe there are some of those women, but I really found that for most of us, it was a combination of poverty of low self-esteem and just absolute destitution of having exhausted all of their avenues for um, sustainability, you know, as an individual. And sometimes too, it's just trying to get away from the life circumstances again. So whether that's living, you know, or relying on the generosity, if you will, of an abusive guy or, you know, trying to get away from a family situation that's toxic or, you know, X, Y, Z, like it's, yeah, I think there is, again, those common undertones, but it just sort of seems to be a mixture of just patriarchy and capitalism kind of combining. And some of us are better equipped to be able to thwart that and avoid entering the sex trade and others, we just don't have many other options. So it's a loaded question and it, it kind of goes back to when people ask about the buyers too. They say like, what makes a buyer? Like who, who are these guys? And I always just say they're, they're just everyday people. They're the every man. And it's kind of really the same for women. They're just the everyday woman. I've met every type of woman, the mother, the non-mother, the student, the non-student, the, the young, the old, um, all types. So Really, I think exploitation doesn't discriminate. It just uh, welcomes anyone it can get its hands on. Can you tell me about your first encounter with prostitution? Yeah, the very, very first time um, that I ever actually learned about prostitution was probably, I want to say, at about the age of seven, eight, maybe, give or take. And growing up in McMurray, we used to come down to Edmonton to do like seasonal shopping, you know, for school clothes or whatever, maybe it was kind of like the trip to the city. And I remember driving down Jasper Avenue um, with my family, my mom, my dad, my sister. 
And that's our main strip in downtown Edmonton. And this was pre-internet days, so a lot of the sex trade was still happening on streets, outdoors, and it was quite visible, especially in those days in Edmonton. And I remember driving down the street, and it was pretty late at night, and there was these women, and they were dressed very stereotypically sex trade, you know, the high knee-high boots and, you know, long coats and mini skirts. And I remember my father... Uh, pointing to these women, and I I want to say I think he was well-intentioned, but it, it sounded quite misogynistic and terrible how it came out. Um, but he pointed to these two women who were standing on the street, and he said, you see those women right there? And I said, yeah. He said, if you don't stay in school, that's going to be you one day. And I really didn't understand even what they were doing there on the street corner or just what was happening and all I kind of saw was this notion of glamour right they looked really beautiful they were dressed nicely and what seemed to be high-end clothing you know they were smiling and laughing as they were talking to each other and and I I just kind of didn't even know what that was all about so in Fort McMurray there really wasn't a visible sex trade scene I, I guess we had a massage parlor there that I later learned about but it was not well advertised or anything like that so when I was 22 um, I don't even think I had ever oh no sorry I'd been to a, a strip club once prior to that so that was really kind of my only exposure ever to anything sex trade related and um, so whenever I saw this ad in the paper you know again being 22 and 60 grand in debt and it says adult entertainment make two thousand dollars a week I really had no clue even what that meant. And so I look back now and I kind of think, you know, do many women really have the opportunity to give informed consent? Because informed consent implies that you understand really what you're getting into and what the ramifications and everything is of that. And I I really had no clue. So I showed up at this place assuming it was maybe like a webcamming studio or maybe, a again, a strip club. And then I learned what a brothel is and what actually happens there. And, and it was really quite a culture shock because it was treated so nonchalantly by the madam. She's like, just go get this license from the city of Edmonton and you'll be here. And yeah, then, you know, we fuck for money. That's what we do. And, and those were her exact words to me. And it was just said like nothing. And so I remember kind of being like, no, no, you know, this... I'm not one of those women, I can't do that, um, because I just had only ever had exposure to really a lot of harm in social media. It was either the glamour or the harm, and I didn't really see myself as either of those people. I didn't see myself as this hedonistic, you know, 22-year-old that wanted to go randomly have sex with strange man after strange man. And I didn't see myself as a victim of trafficking or anyone forcing me to be there. So it was this like, well, who am I? Is this, you know, what I align with? Like, again, just so, so green. And so I didn't know anything about boundaries. Um, I was new. I was young. The women there didn't really want to help me because it's a very competitive environment. So nobody prepped me on anything. I didn't know anything of what I was doing the first time I walked into a room with this man. And he was in his 50s. And um, 
he was just very, very aggressive with me. I guess he sought out new girls because, you know, they don't know any better and don't have those um, insights and boundaries established yet. So he really forced himself on me and, you know, all the girls do this, do this sex act. And I said, oh, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And he said, but everybody does it. And, you know, was nickeling and diming me on pricing and, you know, was grabbing me quite roughly. Um, it was extremely traumatic. And that was kind of what set the tone of what I thought was to come. So it wasn't a good experience by a long shot. And I think um, in some ways, those bad experiences really propel women into almost becoming deadened a lot quicker. And it leads them to putting up with a lot more than they otherwise would. So yeah, I just, I, I look back on it now and I'm quite angry. I'm angry at the men that, you know, seek out women like I was in that moment and really, really capitalize on that vulnerability because it's, again, not really at a point for many people where they're entering with any kind of informed consent or preparation of what's actually to come. Mm -hmm. It does sound really traumatic. And I think, you know, what's, often left out of the narrative when we're hearing from so-called or self-described sex workers um, who say, you know, I'm in porn or I'm in uh, the sex industry, I sell sex, um, and it's fine for me, it doesn't bother me, um, which is that a lot of these women, I think, are traumatized and have just kind of shut down. And so maybe they think they don't care because they've disconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that for sure. And I, I don't know if you had an opportunity to read the paper I published in 2020. It's uh, called On Exiting from Commercial Sexual Exploitation. It's linked on my Twitter bio if you have time to read it sometime. But I think um, really the model that I've laid out in that paper is really, really representative of the majority of people who end up in the sex trade. Um, I break it down basically into three categories of people who sell sex. And the level ones are those that are trafficked, you know, forced by a third party, really exploited. The level threes, conversely, are, you know, like you said, these self-proclaimed sex workers who have viable opportunities, are there by what they call their choice. And then the people in between the level twos are what I've coined quasi-autonomous providers. And I really think that, you know, quasi-autonomous providers make up the vast majority of those who sell sex. They're there and they don't have a gun to their head, but they don't want to be there. And if they had an, another viable opportunity, they wouldn't be there. And I really have noticed time and time again, and, and especially with myself, with a lot of years of now self-reflecting, that we tend to ride this wave that is almost like a bell curve. And why I say the curve is because when you enter the sex trade, you're just at this low point. Um, usually, again, like I said, the low self-esteem mixing with poverty, mixing with, you know, bad relationships whatever may be. And so you're entering really 
at this low point in your life, you know, we're not seeing happy people for the most part enter the sex trade or successful people give up their day jobs to go sell sex. It's, it's a, you know, not the case. And so you start at this low point and now all of a sudden you're starting to get money. You're starting to get, you know, fake affirmation, um, you know, sensations of power and control because it seems like it's all working for you in that moment. So then you begin what I call the climb. You just start, you know, ascending in your spirits, in your um, outlook on the situation. And you're like, okay, I've always struggled, but now I'm still struggling, but I'm making a lot of money doing it. And it just, yeah, it, it seems to take women on this upward climb almost where, I don't know if that's the point that, you know, dissociation starts to really come into play as a factor or if it's just, again, the numbing of the money, you know, the soothing of that. Um, But women tend to be quite unreceptive to any idea at that point that they're struggling or that it's not their choice or that there's kind of more under the surface. And it's weird because a lot of times they don't enter the sex trade that way. They enter with uncertainty and fear and something switches once that money starts coming in. And once they have that sense of stability to some degree, but then of course, you know, most things like that, when you're ascending, what goes up has to come down. And so at the top of that model is what I've called the tipping point. And that's usually driven by some type of catalyst, whether that's positive or negative. So it could be, again, pregnancy or, you know, a a job offering, or it could be violence from a buyer that's very severe or an accumulation of that. And then from there, that's where you really kind of start to see the downward descent happen after that, where there becomes almost like this internal battle with a lot of us, where we start to weigh the reward and and the cost of, of what that is. And a lot of times we're still in this like state of trying to get back to that empowering mindset and trying to tell ourselves like, no, it's it, it was working. You were You were riding this high and now you're just kind of second guessing yourself, you know, sex work is work. It's, it's good. It's good. And you're in this trying to, the state of trying to convince yourself. And uh, there's only so long that you can do that. And especially once you've started that downward descent and you're around everything and you can actually see it with a little bit of a, a critical lens, it's really, really hard to stay in that state. And when you can't be in that state of dissociation, that's where the trauma starts to really, really add up and pile on. And that's where we start to see a lot of women really have to self-soothe with, um, you know, drugs or purchasing things to, you know, soothe that pain. Um, Lots of self-harm, suicide, um, just a lot of tragedy. and and sadness at that point and then some of us are able to get out and we're we're lucky we get those moments and some people aren't and that's really where then numbness I think an even deeper state of dissociation starts to set in when you just don't see a way out so it's quite a journey I think for a lot of women but I've seen that that journey just so many times of the up and the down and it's you know, some women that fall outside of that, like I said, the trafficked women and the self-proclaimed sex workers, but 
I really think that those are a small minority when we look at the overall picture of all the people that are in the sex trade. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes sense to me that women in the sex trade would feel defensive, um, first of all, because I think nobody likes to be told, you know, you're not empowered or you're being taken advantage of or you're being exploited, exploited or even this is bad for you. I mean, even, you know, women who are in relationships with men who are assholes or don't respect them or who are abusive, you know, People are going to be in denial, partly because I think we don't like being judged by others and we like to think of ourselves as being in control of our lives. But then there's also the factor of, you know, if you're not ready to get out or you feel you can't get out, then you're naturally going to tell yourself that things are okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that with a lot of women who have exited, they can look back and and acknowledge that a lot of it was self-denial and trying to convince yourself over and over of that. Um, I know Rachel Morin has spoken about it. I know uh, Canadian survivor Natasha Fowl has spoke about that. And both of them have said in that moment, you know, you're already experiencing so much harm from the men and so much trauma that really, if you allow yourself to, you know, get right down and lay in the trenches and feel every sensation and, you know, all those moments, if you really internalize the full weight of that, mentally, you can't survive. It's, it's almost like war in a lot of ways, right? You're in the front lines, and you have to be there. And you have to say, hey, I'm doing something good. I'm defending my country. I'm, I'm, you know, fighting for freedom. It's all for a noble cause. And we see that a lot, too, with women who sell sex, right? Well, the disabled men, they need sex. The lonely men, they need sex. Like, everybody deserves love. And they really distort a lot of really what love and sex are. Because you don't find really either love or sex in the sex trade. When people say, like, you used to have sex for money, I always think to myself, that wasn't sex. You know, that was compensated sexual abuse. It was me complying, not consenting. It was me granting access that I didn't want to grant just so I could go to Walmart and buy my groceries for the week. You know, and and yeah, I think whenever there's no end in sight, the next best option to collapse <laughs> is to just try to, you know, grin and bear it for a lack of better terms. So I really, um, you know, I don't fault women for that because it's really just trying to maintain your sanity. But I think it's also important that we challenge women on that because I look back now and all the people who supported my quote unquote sex work career, they really didn't do me any favors at the end of the day, they were people that excused the abuse I was enduring, normalized and sanitized, you know, a a system of violence against women, and ultimately kept me in that mindset a lot longer. And people want to vilify feminists who are bringing light to, you know, the power differentials and, and the unevenness to the exchange. And I think it's, you know, it's sad because those looking back now, those were the women that actually propelled me forward and made me question what I was doing and 
saved me in the end. You know, I, I hated them in the moment. I thought like, like you said, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me what to do? Like my body, my choice. Um, but I look back now and I think, you know, people talk about choice, but when you really examine the sex trade, unconstrained capitalism forces so many women into poverty. You know, we, we see the feminization of poverty and then that poverty forces women into the sex industries. The sex industries, by their very nature, force women into spaces with strange, creepy, violent men. And then those men force women into unwanted sex acts all the time because they don't have that option to say no because of poverty. So for people to turn around and say, yeah, but they choose it, you chose that. It's really the epitome of victim blaming. And it just conveniently absolves society of any responsibility to do better by women. So it's it's really frustrating to hear that choice narrative because I, I've not met many women in the sex trade who actually had any choice but to be there. Yeah, I mean, there is <clears throat> there's this dichotomy that's presented by people who advocate for the legalization of the sex trade, the full legalization, um, you know, so legalizing pimps, johns, brothel owners, of course. And, you know, also I think from a lot of feminists, a lot of leftists, many people in the general public who will say, you know, you know, of course it's terrible if women and girls are trafficked. Of course it's not okay if a woman is being forced. But, you know, if she's choosing it and she's making good money, then who are we to tell her what to do? And I find that argument so manipulative to the point where it's hard for me to even believe that these people are being serious when they say it. And, and, you know, I have to sort of assume that some are and some just don't know any better and these are the arguments they've heard or been told. And, you know, some people I think are intentionally misrepresenting what feminists who who are critical of the sex trade are saying um, because, you know, because I don't think there is a clear dichotomy. It's not as though, you know... Yes, it's true that some women are forced and some women are enslaved around the world and lots of women and girls are trafficked. And um, it's also true that some women choose it. And, you know, I'm, I usually try really hard when I talk about this issue or when I write about it that, you know, I know that some women choose and I know that some women say that they like it. And maybe there are, even are some women who do genuinely enjoy it. But I think for the most part, it's far, far more complicated than that. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, um, you know, there's a continuum with both agency and victimization in the sex trade. So you're going to see everything, really. You're going to see, like you said, one extreme to the other where, you know, we can't really use the the quote unquote sex workers as an example for really an entire system just as we can't use trafficked women that way either there is a lot of nuance to the conversation but I think at the end of the day it's it becomes a slippery slope when we start to look at the best case scenario and we make policy on that which really then tramples those that are not in a position to be afforded that level of privilege or that level of security or access to what we would call high-end prostitution. 
you know, it's, it really upsets me when people say, well, you know, if we could just get women off the streets and, you know, into these regulated brothels that are all licensed and, you know, X, Y, Z, that's really the solution. That's going to be the answer to it all, you know, safety measures and panic buttons and all these types of things. But it doesn't change that inherent nature of the transaction, which is that it's a gendered practice and one that relies on women's poverty to sustain itself. Just because some women choose that doesn't mean, like you said, the vast majority do. And who are we really going to make that policy for? Those that have the options to be in safe situations or safer, we could say, um, or those that don't have that. And for me personally, I'd rather see women who have privilege uh, find something else to do, you know, to earn their money than to see women enslaved to meet a demand that's created by normalizing and minimizing what is actually happening in the sex trade. It's, it's really yeah, a distorted thing. And I think also, too, when people say, yeah, some women choose it, like you, yes, I, I would say there are some women that do for a multitude of reasons. But I always like to then challenge people and say, well, how do we determine who these women are? Because at the end of the day, it's fine and dandy to say, oh, she chooses it. But unless you have some foolproof way to actually verify that a woman is there by choice, then really, other than that, you're just, you know, rolling the dice on her trauma, on her safety, on her well-being, and you're prioritizing a male orgasm over those things for women. So until there's some type of way, which there never will be, um, to verify that, then we have to think of those that are in the worst case scenario, and we have to create policy around those people to try to mitigate that harm the best that we can. Yeah. And I mean, maybe she chose it, but you, the John, <laughs> you, whoever is, you know, defending, defending prostitution in this particular way, you don't know what this woman's history is. So you don't know if she comes from a background where she was molested or abused or groomed or, you know, she's struggling with the mental illness, addiction, so on and so forth. You don't know why she's choosing it. You don't know what her situation is. Um, and, of course, it's easier for people to not know and to just say, well, she consented and that's fine. And, you know, that's what you hear nowadays from a lot of people who are leftists, um, from a lot of third-wave feminists, <clears throat> from a lot of libertarians. And, you know, it's really frustrating to hear people who otherwise you know, might have good perspectives on, on things like freedom and rights and who seem to care about um, things like justice and, and women's rights and protecting women from harm um, say these kinds of things. Um, I wonder, I, I want to get back to your story a little bit. Uh, you you said, you know, so this, the first time you went to this brothel, um, you didn't know it was a brothel. And then in the brothel, the, med the madam told you, just go get a license from the city. Was this a legal brothel? Um, so prior to the Protection of Communities and Exploited 
Can you say it? Prior to the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, or PSEPA, which uh, criminalized the buying of sex in 2014 in Canada, prior to that, we just had laws that basically said the actual physical act of having sex for money is not illegal, but every single thing around it is. So communicating, um, you know, things like impeding traffic if you're outside, um, just any type of things, running a brothel, um, all of that, it was all criminalized. And unfortunately, a lot of the weight of that has always fallen on women's shoulders. Women were always criminalized for it, much higher rates than men. But um, so when, I guess whenever I started, would have been 2006. So technically, we did have the common body house law or the brothel law in Canada. So owning a brothel was illegal on a federal level. But then what we've had for quite some time, uh, I want to say since maybe 94 in Edmonton is a municipal licensing bylaw. And really that bylaw, it it was well intended in the beginning days because that was again pre-internet. And there was a lot of people selling sex on the streets and there was a lot of community disruption as a result. And I think in that time, in the late 80s, they had done a count of how many children were selling sex on Edmonton streets and they had counted about 250 kids. So I think, you know, at that point in the 90s, they were really just worrying about community impact and wanted to try to, you know, for lack of better terms, sort of make like, you know, red light districts, but not centralized. So all throughout the city then was these brothels, which had always existed, but now they were licensed, you know, and recognized largely as brothels. There was still a lot of, you know, uh, loose language around it and everything but it was kind of the turning point where they were actually formalized as an acceptable licensed business if you will and again this was led by community with well-intentioned stuff you know to keep organized crime out to keep minors out um, to try to get to know the women and see how they could help them in any type of way but what kind of has happened since the rise of the internet is that really everything has gone indoors anyway. And so a lot of sex now is, you know, sold in apartments, in hotels, homes. Um, The brothel scene has actually been dwindling quite heavily, you know, in the last few years, especially. And uh, it just, um, it it really kind of, something just changed where then it went from being this well-intentioned harm reduction tool to instead being almost like a sanctioning by the state that this was an acceptable activity. When the bylaw was introduced, it was under the understanding that this was harmful. It was harmful for women. It was harmful for community. Um, Really nothing good was happening. It wasn't like, yes, let's endorse this. It was let's try to, again, mitigate the harmful consequences that are happening. But then somewhere along the line, you know, with the rise of sex work ideology, like I said, it's it's shifted now. And now it's seen to be this acceptable everyday business. And it's really in direct violation now of, of the federal law of PSEPA. And so, you know, you'll you'll see people getting arrested 
for buying sex under Pasepa, you know, they get arrested in a hotel sting or whatever may be. And if they're fortunate, they get to go to an alternative measures program called a sex trade offender program, or oftentimes called John schools, which exist all throughout a few different communities in, in Canada. And, uh, then they often say once they're arrested, okay, so I got arrested under this federal law, but here in Edmonton, there's over 30 massage parlors that are licensed. And if I go there and buy sex, nothing will happen to me. There's no sting operations done. There's, there's nothing. It's, it's like this neutral zone that exists with almost like this, I don't know, like understanding that you can go there and, you're going to be fine. No one's going to look into you. No one's going to ask you for ID. No one's going to try to verify any measure of your identity in any kind of way. No judicial recourse for if women are actually harmed. And uh, people then saying again, that's people's choice. They're going there. They want to work there. You know, nobody would go get licensed if they didn't want to work there. And they're really just missing, you know, the the drivers that are landing women there that are making women go to the city to get these licenses and again usually that's you know a mixture of capitalism and patriarchy so it's it's really this distortion and it's not helping us to try to change the social conversation that's happening when we're basically creating these protected spaces for men to be able to go buy sex with impunity and yeah, it's it's a really sticky point for me. So in a nutshell, it was illegal when when it, when I started selling sex in 2006. And it was illegal still when I built my own brothel in 2009. But uh, now it's illegal as per federal law. But hey, as long as you get that city license, no one's going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And how long did you work in this brothel for? Um, so I spent seven years in total in the industry. And for the first three years, I was at three different brothels. Um, all of them really the top brothel in my city at the time. And I, I think, I think that was just luck that I ended up just picking that newspaper ad and going there. And, um, so again, sometimes people will want to say to me, like, you, you just you know, operated out of the wrong place. That's why you were treated badly. You just weren't in a good place or you didn't do X, Y, Z. And I always say like, I was literally in the best studios in Edmonton, licensed all of them, you know, uh, all female owned and still horrific things happen because as much as you want to create these perfect conditions, at the end of the day, you're alone in that room with a man. And no one's going to help you in that moment. No madam is listening in on your session and can come in there to help you or whatever may be. So um, after three years, I just kind of kept telling myself because I was on that upward climb and the money was starting to soothe me. I kept saying, well, these terrible things that are happening are just because of where I'm at. You know, I'm under these other madams who if I reject a client, they're going to find me money because I turned him away because I just lost them a room fee or if I reject this client or if he complains about me I'm gonna lose my shift that's you know the Friday night shift the busy night shift um so you know again there there wasn't really a lot of heavy-handed control on me by madams but it was a lot of 
insidious control. You know, it, it was very underlying. It was very creeping up on you where you were made to believe that you had this power and control. But at the end of the day, you were just another number and another room fee that a madam could get from you in order for her to not have to be in that room selling sex herself. So after three years of that, I just couldn't keep doing it. And I kept telling myself, well, you know, I, I would be a better madam. I would be able to give this space to women that is going to be clean and safe. And we're going to be much more discerning about the men that we even let come in to meet the women, let alone stay for a session. And I had all these, visions of reforming the industry, if you will, and making it what I had heard it could be and what, you know, part of the conversation had been that was sold to me was this empowering, happy situation. But it didn't take me very long before I realized that that's just all a fallacy. And at the end of the day, it it doesn't matter your surroundings or what type of safety measures you try to take. Nothing can stop trauma that comes from unwanted sex with strange man after strange man after strange man. So yeah, I had the brothel for about, I want to say about 18 months that I was renting rooms to other women who, you know, said they were sex workers. Like I said, I was at that time, but you know, you see enough tears, you see enough um, trauma, you see enough drug usage, you see enough, of women sitting in the room, like stalling as long as they can to have to, you know, then go service this random stranger sexually. You can't deny that for, for that long, you know, eventually when you're really seeing it. So um, eventually I, I was able to sell the brothel, which is now a regret of mine. I wish I would have just collapsed it and, you know, carried the debt from breaking my commercial lease. But I sold it to a woman who says she's a sex worker, um, you know, is the type that we were referencing, you know, that, that person who says, I choose this. It's my, my passion. Um, so it still exists and it's a, a sore spot for me for sure, because I feel like I created an institutional space essentially of sexual abuse that women continue to be harmed in. And I know women who have, you know, quit working there or quit selling out of there uh, within the last year or two. And, and they say it didn't matter, you know, beautiful studio, friendly enough woman that I operated under, you know, but at the end of the day, it didn't save me from the trauma. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I, I think that people are constantly trying to think of ways to reform prostitution or the sex trade to make it safer for women. And, and I think that's a noble cause because on one hand, you know, well, for some people it's a noble cause depending on your, your motivation. Obviously some people are motivated by profit (laughs) because they want to be able to make money off of prostitution. Um, but you know, I think that people are aware that prostitution has existed for a very, very long time and that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to end the sex trade. You know, it's probably going to last. It's probably going to exist for forever, um, or at least for a very, very long time, for as long as I live, for sure. 
And so they're trying to think of ways to improve the situation, to ensure women aren't being exploited, to ensure that, you know, it's sort of like the, a tidier, more regulated place. And often their answers are, you know, well, we, we regulate the industry, we have these legal businesses, so they're subject to, you know, rules and regulations, laws, policy, etc. Often people think, oh, well, if these brothels are owned by women instead of men, that makes for a better situation. Um, and if they're subject to, you know, legislation around, you know, workplace I don't know. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know how you would apply workplace sexual harassment laws to prostitution because it seems that that's part of the job. But yeah. I, you know, it, it seems that no matter what we do, prostitution is bad for women. Um, why is that? Yeah, it's, I agree wholeheartedly. It's, it's really, as I've said before, putting lipstick on a pig. It's band-aid solutions. And I don't really consider myself too extreme in any position on any social topic, to be honest, because I, I often see that a lot of these things have nuance to them and a great deal of nuance. And I like to think I'm pretty moderate, you know, and, and see all sides to some degree. But um, I think having been in that mindset myself where I believed all of that stuff, that harm reduction was actually reducing harm, um, it, it, I, I, I can't adhere to that anymore because I've seen that it didn't. And for some people, they'll say, yeah, but, you know, women are dying on the streets, right? They're more likely to be killed. And in some situations, yes, that is true. Um, but I think also we don't look, again, at the nuance to those situations and recognize that, you know, the women who are on the streets, they'll never make it into a brothel for the most part because they have such complex needs and complex struggles in regards to experiencing homelessness or experiencing, you know, addiction or uh, intergenerational trauma um, you know, even just the very nature of who they are, if they're Indigenous women, for example, or women of colour, they're less likely to be offered a position in a brothel. And if, you know, they have any of these challenges, like what I mentioned, are they going to be able to stick with the schedule requirements of the brothel? Are they going to be able to abstain from substance use and abuse in that time of their eight-hour shift, if you will? Um, all these things. So, whenever people kind of say, well, this is the solution, here's what we need to fix the problem. They don't really often understand how deep and complex the actual problem is and how many heads to the hydra exist. And I think, you know, harm reduction definitely has its place. I, I definitely agree in doing outreach as much as you can and trying to connect with the women and, you know, linking them to resources and condoms and, uh, counseling, you know, um, financial literacy, resume building, any of that kind of stuff. Like, of course, that that helps any woman, whether she sells sex or not. That helps everybody <laughs> really to try to reduce harm that they're experiencing. But I think we tend to just call it a day. We do that and we think that that fixes the problem. And 
when people say to me, yeah, but you know, you were lucky to be in a brothel because you weren't killed. If you were on the streets, you would have been killed. And I always say to people that may be true, but honestly, it's the difference between an instant death and a long drawn, drawn out, slow death. And, you know, here I am now in my ninth year of being exited from high end prostitution only. And I live with a lot of trauma and a lot of struggles and a lot of anger and anxiety and frustration and, you know, even still low self-esteem. I, I battle dissociation. I battle suicide ideation regularly. And I'm a Caucasian woman in the Western world who's quite educated, you know, so if someone like me can't come out of that situation well off or you know unscathed how much worse are others faring that don't have the privilege that I had in that time so I you know again I think there is a a place for harm reduction but I I want us to focus on harm elimination and I think whenever we try to do these band-aid fixes really all that we're doing is keeping women stuck longer and excusing what's happening and minimizing and sanitizing it all. And at the end of the day, that's not conducive to women's actual liberation and freedom with their sexuality. Right. And I mean, you know, like, I'm a fan of being realistic and talking about the real world and what's really going on and what we can really do about a thing. So, you know, if we're trying to talk about how to minimize harm and prostitution realistically, it's not that I'm necessarily against that. I just find that people are not being honest about prostitution, you know. Mm -hmm. If people would just be honest about what's actually going on in prostitution, who is in prostitution, why they're there, what's happening to them, I would feel a lot better about these efforts to you know, make the situation, make a bad situation better for some people and try to mitigate some of the exploitation that's going on. Absolutely. And that's really like my main driver every day is just trying to debunk sex work ideology. Because I think until we can do that, it's just going to be generation after generation of women like me who just see it on TV, you know, like you're looking at, you know, wet ass pussy, that song. And it it was the number one song like two years ago. And the entire video, which was, you know, or well, I guess it wasn't a video, but the, the performance at the video music awards or whatever it was, it's literally, you know, women prancing around under this clear stiletto high heel on the middle of the stage as money you know, cash bills are raining down on them and, and it's women humping on stage. And again, I, I really dislike when people think, Oh, you're, you're just sex negative. Oh, you just don't like sex and you're just a prude. And that's why you can't get down with, you know, Cardi B and (laughs) Megan Thee Stallion and they're just artists and, you know, they're owning their sexuality. And I, I just don't see it that way. I'm like, I, I can't see how telling young women, that that is sexual freedom is actually truly sexual freedom. You know, it's transactional sexual access. It's not, there's no mutuality of desire. Um, It's in so many ways akin to sexual abuse, you know, where it was 
this almost like trance like state of dissociation that I would go into. And, and it wasn't even always like physically repulsive men. It was just the fact that there was no mutuality that, that it was transactional by nature that at the point of where, you know, we'd have our little small talk and then my clothes had to come off. It was physically like stepping outside of my body it was like part of me just literally left my body and was not there to feel those touches or to, again, smell those sen- the smells or absorb any of that sensation. And, you know, I've heard that same thing from, you know, survivors of childhood sexual abuse and incest, like you said, and rape. And there's just so many parallels that exist with it where um, there's no enthusiasm, there's you know, there's no option to walk away in a bad moment because it's your livelihood. And so you accept almost anybody that comes through the door and you will do almost anything that they want done within reason, obviously, because, hey, the customer's always right and it's a job like any other. And when we try to pair it with that, it just doesn't match up. And it's so frustrating to see people do that because you know, having a male organ inside your organ is not the same as using your body for production, you know, whether that's waitressing or shoveling ditches or whatever it is, you know, like people want to find the worst job and they're like, oh, it's better than that. And it's like, maybe, maybe in the moment it seems that way, but when you do it hundreds, if not thousands of times, it, it has a compounding effect. You can only leave your body for so many times before you really, really struggle to ever come back into it fully. And like I said, here it is nine years later, and I still struggle to be present in my body and to feel okay in my body. And I still struggle in sex, you know, even though I have a, a healthy marriage. I've been with my husband now for 11 years. And it's everything changes when you endure that and it it doesn't often come back, you know, it's, it stays forever. I think that a lot of men will draw the line between, you know, they'll say like, Oh, I would never pay for sex. Um, but they'll still, you know, go to a strip club. They still use pornography. You know, maybe they use only fans, things like that. Um, do you see a relationship between prostitution, pornography, strip clubs? I think so. I think the underlying message is that women are commodities. They're objectified, you know, hypersexualized, um, dehumanized in so many ways. And so I think it's just different venues. And like you said, it's almost like this, I don't know, divide where I've met so many men actually who say that they're like, oh yeah, you know, like when they find out what I used to do, they they say, oh, I, I've never paid for sex. I never would. Yet they watch pornography and they don't understand that there's a lot of bridging in those areas. You know, I've met countless women who have sold sex in brothels or done escorting who have also done video um, who have done chat lines, who who have just done everything. And really, I think it, it kind of comes down to, again, if you're going to do it, 
you know, a lot of women just say, I'm just going to go all in. I'm just going to do it to the fullest because I'm already here. I'm already compromising myself. My images are possibly already leaked in some kind of way, you know, being secretly filmed or photographed or whatever it may be. And then it's like, you can either own that or you can hide from it. And it's very hard because you're living most of your day after day after day with the fear of being discovered for what you do, that it is much more appealing for women to just take the full plunge and then get to the point of, you know, showing their face on their ads and offering, you know, more uh, extreme acts and things like that, because they know that that's going to get them the money and that's going to really make them feel like they're owning it and that they're not hiding anything and there's no shame there for them. And so I think that we try to appropriate the empowerment, you know, as we already mentioned, as a, a soother for what's actually happening, but definitely lots of crossover. I don't think I ever honestly ever met a buyer in the brothels that didn't watch porn. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head that ever vocalized that he was anti-porn. Um, I'm sure there's lots of men who watch porn that don't pay for sex, but I've never seen it the other way. And I think a lot of the times it's an introduction and a slippery slope. You know, you start off with porn and, okay, well, now I've seen something I like and maybe my partner won't do it or I don't have a partner to try it with. So now I need to, you know, fulfill that that uh, craving for it, if you will. And I'm going to go pay for sex because, hey, sex work is work. And it, it just takes people down a, a really dark path and... And I often, you know, want to say to men too, like, you deserve better than the sex trade. And I, I know that sounds kind of a, apologetic of abusers, but I really think that the industry is very duly exploitative and is no good for men either. And I think sometimes that's the best way to reach men is to highlight that because if oftentimes they don't care about women and they don't see us as equals, if nothing else, they care about themselves. And sometimes I find that's the most effective way to reach them. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, and I, I interviewed a woman who's worked in as a stripper for many, many years. I can't remember how many years, but maybe like fifteen years or something like that. And she's, you know, really she enjoys the work. She enjoys, you know, she genuinely does. She's a radical feminist. She's she's anti-porn, but um, <clears throat> you know, the way that she talks about the men who come to the strip clubs is really revealing. Um, You know, those women don't like those men or respect those men or find them attractive. They think they're idiots and they think that they're men to be exploited. And, you know, they're like, I'm going to take as much cash as I can from you, you loser. (laughs) And I I don't know that a lot of men realize that. Yeah, I, I don't think they do. And I think if they do come to realize it, Sometimes, thankfully, that that's their catalyst, you know, that's their tipping point. And, you know, the model that I, I do in the instep model there um, in my paper, it's really even applicable to buyers as well, too, because, you know, they're missing something in their life, whether that's excitement or, you know, just human touch or whatever it is. And then they see the sex trade as offering all those things and, when they engage the sex trade and start participating in it, now they start the the ascension, right? They start being like, wow, like I can have basically any 
my choice of any woman I want. I can have her basically do any service I'm looking for. Um, this is great. I can have it any time at the drop of a dime. Doesn't take any work. There's really no emotional involvement or requirement on my behalf. And so they get sucked into that as well, too. And then eventually they start feeling used or, you know, maybe they get robbed, which I've seen happen. Um, you know, they, they find out that they're being mocked and laughed at, like you said, behind their backs. They discover that. And then they start the downward descent. And that could be for them, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, violence against women and resentment towards women. Um, sometimes it's the point at, at which they exit, but if they don't exit and stop purchasing sex, then usually it turns into resentment against the women there. And usually that's when there's, you know, the establishment of some type of sex addiction I find as well too. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm always a big supporter of men who try to stop buying and who can see it for what it is and who can acknowledge what's happened that they fell privy to that you know, instantaneous gratification and, you know, our commercialized everything society. And I really appreciate whenever they have the bravery and the, you know, the genuine heart to actually look at the situation and see what they're doing to women and to themselves and, and change their behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that argument that, that you mentioned earlier, which I've heard a lot also around, you know, what about the lonely men? You know, what about the men who can't get sex or disabled men or so on and so forth? And, you know, people need human touch. And it's true. People do need human touch. And I think it's really awful that people don't have access to sexual pleasure and to relationships. Um, but I feel like trying to get that from a prostituted woman would just feel really empty and sad. I don't see how that could fulfill that need at all when you must know on some level what the transaction is and that this woman isn't, you know, your partner or your friend and she doesn't love you and she probably doesn't want you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really sad, you know, and Again, like people always say to me, like, oh, you're you're a John apologizer or you're a con lover, I get called or, you know, you, you're not hard enough on the men. But, you know, I've also met, I want to say probably almost 5000 sex buyers over the last 16 years, you know, of selling sex and then, you know, speaking at our, our John school and just in, engaging men. And I, I don't know, I see it a little differently than most people because I have seen the brokenness that has brought them to the brothel, you know, just as the same that women are not healthy when they're arriving there. The same I find is often true for men. Yeah. There's obviously the, you know, narcissists that find their way in there and the misogynists and the entitled men. But a lot of times it was just men who like us had low self-esteem and just, kind of felt like they didn't deserve better than that. You know, like I, I remember saying to some men, like, why are you here buying sex? Like, you're, you're a good looking guy. Like, what are you doing? You know, like, you're a nice enough guy, go out and find a woman to date. And, and even though they were, you know, um, conventionally attractive and, you know, financially stable and seemingly normal, uh, level-headed, um, they just, you know, would say things like, well, no women 
are interested in me and, you know, like, look at me, I'm, I've got nothing to offer. And so I, I really think, you know, men's mental health does play a part in it. And I, I don't want to say it excuses what they do as a result of, you know, not addressing their mental health. But um, I think we need to really shine that light on men because I find whenever, like I said, I kind of turn the conversation and say to them, like, okay, we know it's not working for women. That's documented throughout many, many decades of, of theory and feminist work. But, you know, what about you as a man? You know, like, how does this helping you? Is, how has it made your life better? And it's not too many men that actually will say it's made their life better. And if it is, it's because, like I said, they're quite early on into their sex buying journey. But I get a lot of messages on, on Twitter and through my email of men who are a few years into buying sex. And most of them are messaging me, asking me where they can get resources or, you know, how, how there's some type of way that they can break free of that cycle of the high and the low, right? Feeling low, rushing to go buy sex to feel something and then feeling low again after because now you're out of your money. And like you said, those women really genuinely don't care about you other than what money you have. So, you know, it's quite damaging to them as well too, financially, emotionally, mentally, and socially. It really removes them from the dating world and just, you know, time keeps ticking and they end up alone at the end. So Mm. definitely lots of work to do with men for sure. Yeah, and, you know, like, how does it make you feel as a man to pay for sex or to frequent strip clubs or to use porn? Like, I don't, I just, I, you know, I think maybe some men don't really think about it, but I think that if you do think about it, you can't say to yourself, this is what a good man would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the same too. And I think that part of that involves humanizing women. Because I think, you know, by nature, the sex trade dehumanizes women. And I found whenever I exited, I within weeks was speaking out and, and educating and sharing my story, trying to make a difference. And truthfully, I did that for seven years um, of the nine now that I've been out. And in that seven years, I don't really feel like I made much of a difference because every time I spoke, I would always be speaking under a pseudonym again and, you know, hiding my face and having uh, people blur my my face and distort my voice and all those things to protect me. And it just kept me as just a, a nameless, faceless person. Right. And so I really that was a big push for me in the last two years to just lay it all out on the table and just put my face and my legal name out there and tell my story, you know, the good and the bad that I've done. Um, Because, you know, I'm definitely not perfect. And I made my mistakes in the sex trade and hurt people as well, buyers and women, you know, obviously, but um, I've really seen a big difference in the last two years on the impact of the work I do, just based on the fact that I'm humanizing a sex seller by being transparent and I know a lot of women can't do that and it's you know there's no expectation of them to do that because it's it's literally like putting yourself in the front of the firing squad <laughs> you know you, you're, you're not really well loved um, by speaking out against the sex trade but I really just find that 
my words now have a bit more weight whenever it's there's a face and a person and a story that isn't just going to be forgotten as something that you heard about but it's actually tied to a actual person that you've seen and you've heard from so I think you know that's really where we have to get back to is the basis of human connection and reminding people that yeah it's a woman on a screen but that's an actual human you know it's not just a a, a fake person like it's not a robot or a computer graphic or hologram or whatever you know like that's an actual person and oftentimes I find too what really helps to move men forward is to say the next time that you watch porn look in the eyes of the woman in that porn video don't look at her breasts or her vagina or whatever's happening look in the eyes of that woman and you will see at least one moment at least one moment where that woman winces or slightly kind of cringes or, you know, rolls her eyes or there will be a telltale moment. And I, I don't watch porn. I haven't watched it for many, many, many years. And, and that was a large reason because I couldn't not see the human in the video. And I think if more men do that, and if, you know, if they can work on that, then a lot of it will, will change at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do about prostitution realistically? I think it's two prong. It's a two prong approach. Um, you know, it's, it's again, capitalism and patriarchy. We have to work at improving women's lives in a material sense, you know, conditions. So, you know, getting women in more leadership positions, obviously better pay, better upward mobility, within corporations, affordable childcare, you know, um, just everything that we can to change the financial situation of women largely, but also the life structural stuff, which again is very interwoven with patriarchy. So the double day and, you know, the, the gendered roles and expectations upon women and, you know, again, sexualized depictions of us. I think it's, it's women have been saying for decades that we, we want to change and that we need our lives to be improved. But I think, you know, unfortunately when men are damaged and broken themselves, they don't want to give us a hand up because then we can't soothe their brokenness and they need that brokenness soothed in their eyes. So I, I really just think we have to not only change the material conditions of women's lives, but we also have to change the conversation about, you know, what is healthy sex? What is healthy masculinity what is healthy exchange between the sexes and really a lot of those conversations on both sides touch on the other right there's so much interwovenness between capital uh, between unconstrained capitalism and and patriarchy but um so when people say well you know you shouldn't say anything about the sex trade until women's lives are changed or until this happens and i'm like it's it has to be a wraparound approach but, you know, doing that, doing it the right way, the wraparound approach, it, it takes a long time. And it's, you know, like you said, we'll, we'll probably never see the eradication of exploitation in our lifetime. But I like to hope and think that, you know, just as women before me have influenced my feminism and have helped me to evolve in my understanding of violence against women, I hope that by me speaking out, I can afford that to the next generation of feminists and young women. And hopefully in time, we see the needle move, you know, it 
feels kind of defeated right now. It feels like it's kind of going in the other direction because it is often a pendulum swing. But I think if we zoom out, we can have some type of hope that progress will be made, even if it's a little bit slow. Mm. Tell me about the work that you're doing now. Oh, um, I have a lot going on this year. <laughs> um, this is probably my busiest year. Um, I have three projects right now in the works. Uh, right now I'm on a second edit of a book um, that I'm writing with uh, a missing and murdered Indigenous woman's mother. Her name is Kathy King. You can find her work at missingkara.ca, and Kara is spelled C-A-R-A. Um, Kathy's daughter was uh, murdered while involved in, in exploitation here in Edmonton on the streets in about 20, 25 years ago, maybe. Um, please don't quote me on that. But... Um, we're working on a book basically just trying to, again, create the conversation as to like, what's actually empowerment, what is exploitation, like pulling it apart a little bit more in depth. So we're hoping to have that book out by summer. We're going to be self-publishing and the book is called buying sex who really pays. And uh, so that's been a fun project, but also um, a little bit tiring at times as I'm sure you know, with writing and books and the weight of all that. But we have some really good contributors. We have, you know, uh, Megan Walker from London Abuse Women's Centre. Um, we have uh, Linda McDonald and Jan Sarson from Non-State Torture who have contributed a chapter. Uh, the fabulous Anna Slats, she contributed a chapter. Um, we have former police officers, uh, former buyers, um, yeah, former, you know, sex sellers, everybody's kind of come together and given some good contributions towards this book. So we're hoping to get that out in advance of all of this PSEPA examination happening so that hopefully the public can have something to, you know, have a foundation to build off of. And then my second project, which is, uh, again, another big project, and it's been going on for over two years now, is a eight-part docu-series that I'm doing in partnership with a local film production company called Guerrilla Motion Pictures here in Edmonton. And originally that started out as a 90-minute documentary trying to basically just follow my journey to have the United States lift my travel ban that I got in 2010 uh, when I was traveling to Las Vegas with a sex buyer. I was pulled aside and documented as a prostitute and fingerprinted and issued a 10-year ban. Um, and so, yeah, that that 90-minute film uh, has now turned into eight episodes <laughs> of one hour each. But, you know, as you know, it's a really complex topic, so it takes a lot to really lay it all out. Um, but I'm I'm really hoping that that will spawn some conversation as well. And then the third one is a project that I'm working on right now with um, a human trafficking survivor and a woman who also sold sex here in Edmonton in licensed parlors. Her name's April Eve Weiberg, and she is just a brilliant Indigenous survivor and activist who founded Stolen Sisters and Brothers Action Movement. And she really does a lot of great work about, uh, you know, calling people to implement and endorse the 213 calls to justice and, and action. 
um, by the government that was found in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. So she and I are doing a, a piece, um, an art installment, all about women's poverty and all the socioeconomic issues in each jurisdiction and you know, province territory that leads women to becoming predisposed to exploitation and trafficking. So we're, I'm really just trying to kind of hit it from all angles prior to PSEPA um, being reviewed and just try to get the readers, the watchers, and the art goers, and just try to kind of um, move some hearts and have people start asking some honest questions about what we're actually doing here in Canada and if it's actually helping. So that's in addition to trying to finish my last year of my degree and having three kids that are three, five, and seven, and uh, a few other things I have on the go, but it's good. It's, it's you know, encouraging me at the same time to do a lot of these projects it gives me some something to work towards and feeling like you know I'm trying to contribute something to the conversation so we'll see how it is received and if it is successful in moving the needle but yeah that's kind of what I got going on (laughs) sounds busy (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) thank you so much for your time I I kept you longer than I said I would, but um, this conversation was really interesting to me, and I suspect it'll be very interesting and informative to Feminist Current listeners, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, and you know, thank you for the work that you've done, because in 2012, when you launched Feminist Current, that was the last year that I was selling sex, and um, a lot of the pieces that you were putting out you know, in the early days and still now, they really, really, truly helped to expand and shape my feminism. Um, I remember, especially around pole dancing, I I really didn't have, you know, anything but uh, the mindset that it was a sport, <laughs> you know, and that it was nothing to do with stripping and all this kind of stuff. And, and I just think that you're a brilliant feminist and a wonderful advocate for women and girls. And we're really, really lucky to have your voice. So I really appreciate you inviting me and and having this time with you. I'm yeah. I'm thank you. I'm glad that we were able to connect and have this conversation. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com. Tweet at us at feministcurrent or send us an email at info@feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button. 